Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, February 10th. It's been a busy week for Mayor Jyoti Gondak, from racing around in a rally car to visiting the set of another TV production being shot right here in the city. We catch up with the mayor for our weekly chat, including details on the latest office to residential conversion happening in the downtown core. Every week we get our U.S. update from Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. This week, it was a different focus with Jackson as we caught up with him live in Adayaman, Turkey for the latest on the search for survivors of Monday's devastating earthquake. Is the federal government's Just Transition Plan really just the National Energy Program 2.0? We talk about the impact Just Transitioning will have on workers in Alberta's energy sector with Dan McTagg, President, Canadians for Affordable Energy. This week, the Calgary Chamber releasing their priorities. Calgary business community uh, was looking at heading into the next provincial election. Joining us to talk about all the issues facing Calgary and Calgarians is Mayor Jyoti Gondek, live in studio. Welcome to the QR Calgary Studios, Mayor. Thanks for having me back in. Live on FM and live in the QR Calgary Studio. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. It's nice to have a conversation face-to-face. Much more fun that way. Um, let's talk about the um, the economic investment in the city of Calgary. How, how do we continue to encourage economic investment and keep this business community growing and just getting bigger and better in the city? I think it's been a great partnership between the City of Calgary, Calgary Economic Development, and the Chamber and local businesses. We have all been delivering the same message that this is not only a great place to live where, you know, your staff teams would really enjoy creating a life for themselves, but there's so much opportunity for you know, the office space that you're looking for, for all of the amenities that you would need to have a great life here. So it's a good news story and it's um, it's selling our city very well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Calgary Chamber and the Calgary Chamber doing chamber things, laying out priorities. And and so I'm wondering, A, what do you think of the direction that they see businesses is moving in and what, what they're doing to foster growth? But also, what is the relationship between the city of Calgary and the Calgary Chamber, if you can break that down for us. Yeah, absolutely. The Chamber uh, came out with um, a very clear document that indicates there should be more investment from the provincial government into our city. They really focus on small business. I mean, it's 95% of our businesses are small businesses, so it's important to make sure that we are taking care of those folks. Um, And the relationship between the Chamber continues to grow with the city. Uh, For many years, it was deemed to be a a business association, but we have realized the value of making sure that each understands the other's roles and that we're playing, um, you know, uh, the role of active partners when we are selling our city to external investors. And it's just been a pleasure to work with Deb Yedlin and her team. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little trip downtown, shall we? Uh, I know uh, this week you toured the latest office to residential conversion. Let's talk a bit about, obviously, very important in in finding a use for our our empty downtown buildings. But is it going to be enough, do you think? What more can we do? It's a really good starting point. And I think um, for anyone that ever has the chance to tour a building that is going through the conversion process, it's incredible. You see the markings on the floor of, you know, where all of the old office walls used to be. And then you see what's coming up in terms of the steel that they're putting in to create um, an exterior that's going to be different. Like in the building that I toured yesterday, the People First building, they had put up the steel and we're taking off the old exterior. It's incredible. Like the three-bedroom apartments that are going to be there are unbelievable. So it is an excellent start, and I'm looking forward to having more post-secondary downtown and all kinds of uses that we traditionally didn't see in buildings like this. And what a great opportunity for for the workers that are going to be doing these conversions that perhaps would not be at work right now. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's it's great for the economy. We've got people back at work. We've got a lot of families very happy that they are soon going to have a home. It's anticipated that um, January could be occupancy for a lot of people who are looking for a place to live. That was the next question. That's great. Yeah. So, okay, so let's talk about the homeless situation, first of all, in the city. It continues to be an issue, continues to be a problem. A lot of folks, they don't want to go to the shelter. So what other answers are we you know, trying to work on and come up with? Um, it's been an absolute pleasure working with Patricia Jones from the Calgary Homeless Foundation. Um, this is a woman who really understands the need for housing and the type of housing. She has been particularly um, passionate speaking up about high acuity housing need. So these are folks that are incredibly difficult to house, not because they're bad people, but because their needs are so great. So she continues to push every order of government and every partner organization to figure out how we do high acuity housing, because really, once you're able to help those folks and you can get them off the street and assist them in living a dignified life, the need for shelter goes down. And at the same time, if you are building more affordable housing and you're building those supports that are needed, you're really taking care of people that are in positions of vulnerability. So I have heard a very compassionate perspective from Calgarians, particularly those who have businesses downtown, that they want to help folks. This is not a pushing out a, you know, quotes, homeless problem. This is about how do we take care of our neighbors. And Calgarians, for that matter. Yes. Uh, hey, Calgary Economic Development did their yearly survey on how Calgary's perceived on the world stage beyond our borders of the city. Uh, I'm wondering uh, your perspective. You have a say now uh, as a, a mayor or a citizen. You can you, you kind of dabble on both sides here. We used to be seen as that oil city. What are we perceived as today in 2023? Are we still that oil city? Are we a little more diverse than that? I think it's important to recognize the movement that we have made. One of the um, one of the measurement points was, do you think Calgary has a diverse economy? And we moved up six points in terms of people feeling that we have a diverse economy. That's massive. It may not seem like a lot, but the ability to shift 6% in one year is a very big deal. And the perception that we are more than um, just the energy sector. And I say this with great love for the energy sector. That's how we've been successful for many, many years. This is not a matter of replacing one sector mm-hmm. with another. This is a matter of demonstrating that we are going through a strong energy transformation. We have a very diverse economy and we are building on past successes by having a future that um, incorporates more businesses. Last week, you were in a rally car. I yes. saw you was zipping around the track. Nitro Rallycross was here. I think it's another example of, you know, just exactly what you were talking about, that we we have a great reputation across the country, across North America, around the world, that these these kinds of events now really want to come here and, and be front and center for our people. Absolutely. And, you know, good on Calgary Stampede for really laying out something different. If you go to that track and you're from Calgary or you've ever been to Stampede, it's where the chucks always Mm -hmm. happen, right? It was super cool. And to see Rallycross and like get vaulted into the air on that 30-foot jump, that was unbelievable. So I have to say this was really well done on the part of Calgary Tourism, Calgary Stampede to bring something different into our city and the fans, holy moly, the lineup was just madness and they enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, it was awesome. From rally cars to, you know, the productions that we've had, like The Last of Us, mm-hmm. which I got to, I guess it's uh, tonight, The Last of Us, by the way. You can watch Calgary tonight because it's a sneak the preview. Super Bowl, yeah, Super Bowl's on Sunday. Um, to a different Great production, uh, <laughs> Fraggle Rock, for example. Yeah. So much going on. Oh. Fraggle Rock, the set of Fraggle Rock. Ooh, it's 
magic. So you you went and you you hung out. What 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 did you do? Just get a tour? Are you going to take? Are you going to be a puppeteer now? <laughs> helping out? You know, in my spare time, <laughs> my side hustle is going to be puppeteering. The, the puppeteers are absolutely incredible. We met the folks that are creating uh, the costumes. For the puppets, we met the painters. Just incredible talent in our city right here. to be able to put on a production like that. It was it was heartwarming. Awesome. And and just continues to show, again, more and more productions like The Last of Us. I think as, as people start really catching on to The Last of Us, what an awesome show that is. I think that'll be bring even more here, don't you think? Absolutely. And, you know, we've got Fargo going on here right now. And uh, they've managed to transform an old building into something completely different. Like, it happens to be a place I used to work at. And I was touring through what they've done thinking, oh my goodness, I remember these were the VP offices and now they're not. There's something (laughs) very, very different. So it's pretty cool. It's cool to see Mm -hmm. because it's your community. Uh, Let's, before I let you go, uh, we'd be remiss. It's a big deal on Sunday because of the Super Bowl. Now, if you're not a, a football fan, if you don't have, you know, your favorite team in the game, whatever it might be, the one thing we all have in common is our favorite foods watching the big game. And there's debates raging on as far as what you have to serve at a Super Bowl party and what you enjoy. How about you, Madam Mayor? I got to say, SNL last weekend with the wing skit. I don't know if anyone I didn't saw see that. Oh, my God. It was all wings all the time, like being <laughs> shooted into this person's home. It, it was <laughs> hilarious. But, you know, I like myself some wings mm. with football. Okay, fair. And do you remember, we'll also talk this morning, uh, we're talking about our favorite past halftime performances. One that pops into your head that you remember most, that you loved? Halftime show? Well, I think the big performer that year was Shania Twain, but um, it was actually no doubt that led off. That was my absolute favorite. Okay. Yeah. Gwen no Stefani was that. out there. It was unbelievable. You're always off the beaten path with your answers. I am a little bit, you know? I like that about you. Well, thanks. Okay. Um, if you want to come hang out with us anytime, you're welcome to uh, drop by the studios at any point in time. Well, from what I understand, you have some Topps Pizza going on today because it's their 50th anniversary, so I might stick around. That we do. Breakfast pizza for the mayor, Andy. We need some help. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll talk next week. Have a great weekend. Sounds good. Happy weekend, everyone. The death toll in Turkey has climbed past 21,000 people following Monday's devastating earthquake. Joining us with the latest live from Adiyaman, Turkey, is Jackson Prosko, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Good morning, Jackson. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I mean, the death and the destruction, we're seeing it on TV. It's overwhelming. And then a flurry of dramatic rescues sort of brightens the mood slightly. But overall, it just must be just a a terrible situation and and devastating to be standing there looking at what's happening in that country. Yeah, I would say the pictures uh, do not do justice to what is going on here. Uh, In this city, for example, uh, it's not just the rest of the building, but it's compounded as block after block after block where uh, apartment buildings are completely flattened. And there are uh, hundreds of rescue workers pouring over those buildings simultaneously. It's it's absolute chaos. Um, You did mention those heartwarming rescues, and we actually just witnessed one of those take place uh, at the hands of they were a team uh, that successfully located a woman who was still alive under the rubble five days later, and they were able to pull her out to safety, get her to hospital. Um, they said that all things considered, obviously she's injured, but is doing well. Uh, but as, as time goes by, uh, hope for moments like that is, is uh, fading rapidly. Yeah, and I would think, uh, Jackson, the time is of the essence, as you mentioned, five days in. So let's talk about the other side, the, the rescue crews who are having to, to, to comb through the rubble, to, to use equipment and do what they can to try to find victims of the earthquake. How are they staying motivated and keeping hope alive? What are you hearing from these crews? 
You know, it's the moments like today that keep them going, and they say they will not give up. Uh, the, the task is absolutely overwhelming. Um, earlier today, we actually came across a small town, uh, and uh, we arrived, and there was heavy equipment digging at two collapsed apartment buildings. Uh, and people were surprised to see us because they said that really no one from the outside had come in. The rescue workers had not come yet, uh, and it had been five days. And they showed us videos of people who had been trapped and uh, were calling out for help on the you know second day after the earthquake. Uh, people they were unable to rescue, and they said they calls uh, in vain for rescue, and it never came, and, and those people died. Uh, in one apartment building we came across today, uh, they, they believed that as many as 200 people had died in that single building. So what, what has been the, the problem with the response, Jackson? Because Syria's president is saying the West has no humanitarianism. The people of Turkey are calling out the Turkish government. What exactly happened when this, when this disaster struck? Yeah, certainly here in Turkey, there is a lot of frustration at the government response. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a couple of things happening. People feel that it's simply not well coordinated. And people feel that aid is not being distributed in an equitable fashion. That explains uh, places like we went to today that had not seen any other relief. Uh, and, uh, you know, one thing we've heard is that people feel that sort of a show is being made, a big response and big rescue in some cities, while other cities like the one I'm in right now uh, are completely neglected. Uh, here in Adayaman, it's to the point that um, there are bodies in the streets that are not being collected. Uh, it, it is really that bad. Devastating. Uh, were you talking about, yes, some questions of aid within the country. What about support coming from the U.S. and other countries with these recovery efforts? What what do we know? Yeah, we know there is a, a sort of a rapid mobilization taking place in the international community, and uh, the aid workers who are on the ground here are from all over the world. I mentioned the firefighters from Burnaby. Uh, we ran into a team from uh, Mexico here. Uh, there's crews from Japan. There's crews from Germany. Uh, so they are moving in. Uh, and it's really a question of how they get uh, aid and resources and rescue to the people who need it most. Uh, certainly there's been a lot of criticism in the places we've been to that uh, it has taken days and days and days for any sort of response to materialize. At the same time, uh, we're seeing um, you know Turkish government agencies move in. Uh, really what they're focused on is housing right now because many of these structures are uninhabitable. Uh, there's, there's nowhere for people to live, so they're either living in tents uh, there's also a move to relocate people en masse to other parts of the country where uh, they're safer. And uh, one of the provinces we were in yesterday, uh, more than 30,000 people have already been relocated out of that province because there's there's no place to house them uh, where they're from. What's the weather like there, Jackson, in terms of those who, you know, may be living in tent cities, the workers that are, you know, working through the evenings and nights? What is it like there? Yeah, it is well below zero at night. Uh, chilly in the day. Uh, there's been a lot of snow in the past few days, uh, especially uh, many of the mountain passes and roads that you would drive to access these areas uh, have actually been closed or detoured. Uh, and uh, it's a real concern, the weather here. Uh, what we're seeing is uh, many of the people who are homeless or people who are watching over the rubble, uh, waiting for the, the rescue or recovery of loved ones, are simply collecting scraps of wood and material to burn, uh, anything they can find to stay warm at this point. Jackson, obviously the efforts in these huge piles of uh, buildings that have been collapsed and uh, workers working around the clock, uh, but with, with such damage, I'm wondering when it comes to infrastructure, are certain areas still uh, with, without power and resources, uh, surrounding areas, and, and how deep does that go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, a huge lack of electricity, of natural gas for heating. Uh, last night, we stayed overnight uh, in a city called Gaziantep, which is uh, about 2 million people, and there was uh, no heat available, and most of the, the towers were dark. 
Uh, and in that case, many people have simply left the city. It's kind of a ghost town at this point. Okay, so Jackson, we know the Canadian government is going to match donations to the Canadian Red Cross earthquake in Turkey and Syria appeal. Every donation made by individuals to the Red Cross up until February 22nd will be matched up to $10 million. You are there, you're seeing it live, you're on the ground. What can you say to people to maybe make them understand that we really need to help out with as many dollars as we possibly can? Yeah, I would encourage people to think about this uh, in the context of their own lives. You know, when, when somebody loses their home uh, in the West, they often uh, go back to collect a few precious belongings and, you know, they have somewhere to stay when their home is rebuilt. Here, people are collecting scraps of material to burn to stay warm because there is nothing left. Uh, they have lost countless family members. Uh, they do not have time for burials. Uh, they have to focus on their immediate survival, and there is there is quite literally nothing to go back to and no one to look after them. Incredible. Uh, you know, we, we appreciate the update because we, we can't even imagine. We've seen the images, but I can imagine how much more impactful it is to be on the ground there, Jackson. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Jackson Prosco, of course, on the ground right now in Turkey. At the National Energy Program of the 1980s nearly crippled the oil and gas sector in Canada. Well, is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau following in his father's footsteps with the Just Transition Plan? Joining us to discuss is Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Good morning to you, Dan. It is a good morning. Hello, Andy, and Sue. Uh, what are, uh, can we draw similarities between the Just Transition Plan and the National Energy Program of the 1980s, or is the only similarity the last name of the Prime Minister in charge of, of each program? <laughs> Well, full disclosure, I was a strong liberal uh, from 1978 uh, campaign in the by-election in York Scarborough again in 79. Helped a guy named Morris Strong who ran for the Liberals, decided to pack it in. That name will be uh, remembered by many as the former chair of Petro-Canada and really the granddaddy of the World Economic Forum and all of the moves towards climate change and initiatives towards that long before that was uh, a thing. And in 1980, worked for Paul Cosgrove, uh, who uh, later became the housing minister when we had 21% interest rates. That aside, Andy, uh, there are extraordinary similarities to the move of this Trudeau government uh, and its attack on the oil and gas sector. And I'm an Easterner. Uh, I have no skin in the game. I'm not a big fan of the oil and gas sector, especially oil, where I've taken them on as a member of parliament, especially on uh, the downstream and the uh, disciplining of small independent gas retailers. The record is very clear on that. But what I do see here is an attempt by this government uh, to say, well, just transition is no big deal. We're just trying to help workers transition, but really greasing the rails to shutting down, to putting emissions caps, to putting carbon taxes, to regulating this industry, to blocking pipelines. Take your pick. They've already set the wheels in motion to try to kill this industry. And therefore, uh, because it has uh, an enormous impact, not just on the Canadian economy, revenues for the federal government, but most specifically to the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, to a lesser extent, Newfoundland, that have an extraordinary amount of their GDP and employment based in this industry. Yes, I think there are significant analogies. And although the Liberals, uh, some like Seamus O'Regan, who I've known for many years in my many, many uh, interviews on Canada AM, uh, is trying to really make this a silk purse out of a sow's ear by saying, hey, this is not about this. We understand the importance of workers. We're just trying to make sure that we help them along the way. The world, if Russia hasn't made that very clear this morning by cutting back a half a million barrels of oil, 
the world needs more Canadian oil, and we need to get it to markets. This is a government that has said no and is therefore responsible for the, uh, in many respects, for the, uh, the decline uh, that we've seen in this industry. Now, recently it's picked up, but it's at its maximum. So, Dan, maybe I'm naive, but I don't understand why the government would want to, if that is, in fact, their goal to kill the oil and gas industry, particularly in Canada. I mean, we all know that, that any transition is not happening tomorrow. So it, I just it, I can't even wrap my head around it because we know we need oil and gas and will for, for decades to come. Correct. But I think for many people, the idea of the, of the climate plan that the Liberals have tried to bend over backwards for uh, particularly Justin Trudeau and his uh, his ministers and, and backbenchers, has up to now been done without consequence. In other words, people didn't feel a carbon tax. People didn't feel inflation with a weak, weakened Canadian dollar as the result of blocking our most valuable resources from getting to markets, markets that want them. Um, he hasn't, Canadians really haven't felt the full sting of inflation and realized they're getting, you know, really, they're getting stiffed and, uh, and fleeced when it comes to these so-called uh, carbon rebates. Now, of course, we've seen, you know, a, 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 your province is doing extraordinarily well, picking up a lot of uh, workers from my province, uh, a real reversal of fortunes. No matter how you do it, it, it's very good for the country, but you still have a committed phalanx of strong, committed climate uh, alarmists within the Liberal caucus, start, and the cabinet, starting with Stephen Gibo, who is going out of his way to say, you know, come hell or high water, damn the torpedoes, I'm going to shut this industry down. And I think you and I understand that. I'm in Ontario. I know full well with the cold we had last week that there are cute little windmills and solar panels and heat pumps didn't damn well work. So what does work? Yeah, my ability to turn on my propane, my natural gas, uh, the ability for our electrical grid to be supported by natural gas backup plants. By the way, Quebec, which of course boasts its hydroelectric uh, prowess, had to borrow some of that natural gas produced hydro from Ontario because it was telling people, please turn down your thermostats. Our grid can't take it, especially in the winter. So all this is to say, I think reality is starting to hit Canadians right between the eyes. And they're reali- recognizing very quickly that the uh, Trudeau National Energy Program 2.0, which is the just transition and a whole pile of other climate goals, are really aimed at undermining uh, the prosperity of Canadians. So it's not just Albertans that will feel this more disproportionately. It is the country as a whole. Look, I am in Oakville, Ontario. Within an eye shot of where I am is are the steel factories in Hamilton. A good number of those, 71,000 jobs in this province and $8 billion dollars in economic activity every year thanks to the oil and gas sector. So if anybody wants to, you know, look a gift horse in the mouth, by all means, uh, be my guest. But most people can't pay for it. Speaking with Dan McTagg, President, Canadians for Affordable Energy. We've laid out uh, the issues as you see them, 2.0, this this plan that we're seeing. Uh, What can or should Canadians and provincial governments, for that matter, do to, to push back against the Liberal agenda here? Well, I think your premier is doing just that. I mean, I have no skin in the game, as I said, but the fact is that you finally have uh, a major pushback. And, you know, Lahey did the same thing in 1981, where he said to Trudeau, you're not going to get oil. You want to take over our sector. You want to have a made-at-home Canadian price. You want to cap what we can produce. Very similar strategies. Uh, Lougheed was a lot more uh, was a lot more determined and said, uh, we're going to simply throttle back on the amount of oil that Eastern Canada is going to get. And you know what? It got our attention. I shouldn't say ours and yours because it's really all about Canada. But if people by now do not understand the importance that a strong Alberta is good for Canada, then only look at the equalization payments my province receives 
Quebec receives, many other provinces receive, uh, and to know that uh, you know what's good for Alberta is good for Canada. What's good for Canada is also should be good for Alberta, not the other way around. Dan, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, we uh, appreciate your passion always. <laughs> thanks for having me again, Sue and Eddie. Thanks for joining us. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. AffordableEnergy.ca is the website. 